Well, if you have your Bible, please take it, would you please? And let's go over to Ruth chapter 3. We're interested in verses um, 14 through 18 and what we want to talk about today. And we're going to get to those verses in a little while here. Often you'll find this to be true in your own life, that God so works in your life that behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Isn't that true? Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. All the famine, hardship, and death that characterizes the early part of Ruth is now beginning to reveal Yahweh's smiling face to Ruth. Up to this time, Ruth had to blindly trust the goodness and loving kindness of Yahweh. She had no idea how the portrait of her life was really going to turn out. There's a story told about African impalas. They can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance greater than 30 feet in one jump. Yet those magnificent creatures can be kept in an enclosure in any zoo with a three-foot wall because the animals will not jump if they cannot see where their feet will fall. They won't do it. Faith is the ability to trust what you cannot see, and with faith, you're freed from the flimsy enclosures of life that only fear allows to entrap you. We've just gone through a pandemic. Fear will paralyze you. Fear will trap you into a meaningless existence. Fear will cause you to turn on other people in anger. Fear will rob you of life. It will destroy your will to live. Fear will keep you from accomplishing great things for Christ. And the antidote to fear is full and complete faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a blind leap in existential darkness. It's a faith that is rooted in the self-revealing triune God who loves and cares for his own. Faith in God and his steadfast love for his people is the great incentive to be bold and courageous as a believer in the day and age in which we live. Rabbi Simlai in the third century, noted that Moses gave the Israelites 365 prohibitions from God, 248 positive commands in the law. In Psalm 15, he said, David reduced them to 11. Isaiah, in Isaiah 33, verses 14 and 15, he reduced them into six. Micah, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, binds them into three. And the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4 reduces them to one, namely, the just shall live by faith, faith. right? Then he concludes the book by boldly stating this there in Habakkuk. He says in verses 17 through 19 of Habakkuk 3, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive shall fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places." Let me tell you something. When I read those words, Ruth could have written those words. In our text today, I want to explore with you three aspects of Ruth's faith. It can be seen, number one, in her resilience. And number two, it can be seen in Ruth's Redeemer. And thirdly, it can be seen in Ruth's report. So the first thing we want to take a look at is really Ruth's resilience. Where did she get her resilience from? There's no mistake that Ruth the Moabitess was a radically transformed woman, formerly an idol-worshiping female pagan Gentile, one of the least persons you would ever expect for God to appoint and elect to be a critical part of his redemptive plan for you 
And this is what makes her life so fascinating. As the Apostle Paul has written in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. That's why we've called the series through Ruth, Unexpected Redemptive Providence. How our Lord appoints and uses a woman like Ruth and his redemptive sovereignty is surprising and notably unexpected. She is not what you would anticipate her being because she evidences a deep and unshakable trust no matter what life throws at her. So what is the source of her steadfastness? Where did her confidence in life come from? And why was she willing to risk everything and follow Naomi the way that she did? What caused her to make the decision to put her life at risk in the grain fields of Israel? So to answer these questions and more, I believe the bedrock of Ruth's resilience has really three layers to it. The first layer, her resilience is rooted in trusting in the Lord. This is the foundational layer of her trust. And by the way, any kind of resilience that you're going to have in life, especially in terms of spiritual profitability, has got to start here. It has to start with your trust in the Lord. The second one, the second layer of this is evidenced in her trusting of the law. So to trust the Lord really means that you trust his word. And then the third layer of her resilience is established in trusting Yahweh's loving kindness. To know and to trust the word means you understand the great riches and the depth of his loving kindness. So when it comes to her resilience, let's take a look at this first area that I think is important here. And that is her trusting in the Lord, her trusting in the Lord. This is the most fundamental layer of her resilience. Ruth is a regenerate woman as a result of Yahweh's work in her heart and life. And there's no doubt that Ruth's mind, in, in her mind, that Yahweh was trustworthy. He was trustworthy even during the most difficult trials and losses of life. Resilient saints fully trust the Lord no matter what their circumstances are. And here are actually seven ways that Ruth displays her trust in Yahweh. Let's take a look at the first one. She sees she's been genuinely converted. Ruth was willing to convert to trusting Yahweh alone and the Mosaic Covenant when she married Malone. Now, we're going to explore this a little bit more in a moment, but... Her wholehearted faith begins with her conversion. And it has dramatically changed her life. It's changed her direction. It's changed who she associates with. It's even changed her country. Everything in her life has changed as a result of this. The second thing that we see in this is her comfort. Ruth did not associate or blame Yahweh when her husband died. You can see her trust in Yahweh when this happened. So one moment, Ruth is converted and newly married. The next, she is a widow. And now this is remarkable when you cannot find one bit of anger or bitterness or resentment resentment towards Yahweh for taking her husband, even though she grieved the loss of Malone. She did not allow that to shake her faith. For too many professing Christians today, the least small trial causes them to question God and then complain about their assurance. That was not true with Ruth. Ruth, thirdly, her commitment, Ruth did not leave her mother-in-law's side when Naomi released her to return to her birth mother and her gods. This is one of the most revealing features of Ruth's trust in Yahweh. She is given the opportunity to renounce her faith in Yahweh and to return to her trust in her previous gods 
and she refuses to do so. Her trust in Yahweh is most resilient here. Go back to Ruth chapter 1 by way of reminder. Back several messages ago, we were studying this and pick up there in verse 8. Ruth chapter 1, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible here. And it says, Naomi, in verse 8, said to her daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, uh, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I not, have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return my daughters, go for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is more bitter for me than for you, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then she said to her, Behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So here... Ruth is actually giving them permission, permission to leave and to go forward um, back to their birth homes, to their birth mothers, and to their gods as well. So you can see, during, even during this time when Ruth was given that permission, she didn't leave her mother-in-law's side. The fourth thing is you can see her character. Her character. She vowed to remain with Naomi until death and continue to worship and serve Yahweh. Verses 15 through 18, you can see her vow there when she picks up and she says, then she said, behold, your sister-in-law, this is speaking of Naomi, is saying to Ruth, has returned to her people and her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not press me to forsake you in returning back from following you. And for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and more, if anything, but death separates me and you. So you begin to see here, after Naomi has essentially renounced or encouraged Ruth to return to her birth mother, and her gods, Ruth could have easily assumed that she was being rejected as a daughter-in-law. But in another display of a remarkable trust in Yahweh, she vows a solemn oath to remain with Naomi until she dies. Fifth, you can see her confidence. She took the treacherous journey to Bethlehem with Naomi. Two women traveling alone through a desert wilderness on a 60-mile hike in dangerous, is a very dangerous journey in mountainous terrain. Thieves and robbers could easily view them as easy targets. And yet Ruth is willing to make this journey with Naomi because she had confidence in what Yahweh was doing. Number six, Not only that, but we also find out that her companionship, she remained loyal to her mother-in-law despite Naomi's bitterness. Naomi was not an easy traveling companion. Just for a moment, those of you who are married, imagine traveling with your mother-in-law. And then add upon that the fact that she's bitter. She's a bitter woman to be around. So this is her mother-in-law, and she's very bitter. This is not an easy woman to be with. She believed that Yahweh was abusing her. I don't imagine that it was an easy trip. If you've ever been around an embittered person, yet Ruth and her trust in Yahweh is seen in the faithful companionship 
she has with Naomi. Number seven, last of all, her compassion. She risks her life in Israel in order to support Naomi by gleaning and threshing the barley grain. You can see this compassion that she is evidencing here. Naomi was a needy woman. She was old. She could not do the work of acquiring food. Ruth steps up, and despite the risk to her own life as a young Moabite woman who was an enemy of Israel, she now goes out into the grain fields around Bethlehem to glean barley for her and Naomi. She could have easily been killed or raped by numerous Jewish men. Her resilience is seen in her compassion towards Naomi. Now, there are seven ways in which Ruth now displays her trust in Yahweh. First, in her conversion. Second, in her comfort after the death of her husband. Third, in her commitment to remain with Naomi and worship her God. Fourth, in her character, vowing to not leave Naomi until death. Fifth, in her confidence in braving that perilous journey to Bethlehem with Naomi. Sixth, in her companionship with Naomi despite her bitterness. And seventh, her compassion for Naomi and risking her life in order to attain sustenance. Yahweh had given Ruth genuinely a believing, trusting heart. She trusted him, and this is best seen in her careful adherence and obedience to the Mosaic law, which is the next layer we want to take a look at. The next layer to her resilience is trusting of the law. What did Ruth understand about the law? We don't know exactly, but we can deduce and evaluate her actions, and they reflect a very good understanding of the Mosaic Covenant. Let me highlight four conclusions here. You can see them on the screen here. I have made about her knowledge of the law. The first thing is that she learned that the Mosaic Covenant provided for widows and their families. For Ruth to convert to Judaism, we know she had to be instructed in the requirements of the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible, especially the book of Deuteronomy. In that instruction, there are details given about Yahweh's provision in his law for the care of widows. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is replete with that. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 through 21. In Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. In Deuteronomy 26 and verses 12 and 13. In all of those particular passages, God comes back over and over again, and he talks about the fact that he cares for widows and for orphans, those who have been destitute. And Ruth knew that through her instruction. She understood this. Ruth trusted God's word. She believed it, followed it. This is another reason for her resilience. The second thing is she trusted that Yahweh would be her ultimate redeemer. He would be her ultimate redeemer. In a very vivid and stark contrast with the gods of Moab, whereby she had grown up, Yahweh was not cruel and demanding. He was compassionate and loving. He cared for the destitute, the discouraged, the downtrodden. He would show himself to be a redeemer, a goel is the Hebrew word of his people. Ruth had heard the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt, how Yahweh had cared for them. She could see firsthand how God had placed them in the promised land. She was now one of them. She had heard the promise the Yahweh had made to Israel through Moses in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will redeem you. This is what God promised to be. He promised to be their redeemer. And she also trusted the very character of Yahweh. He was a God abundant in loving kindness. 
She knew the verses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where the Lord passes in front of Moses and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That's key. And in fact, that. All of Israel understood this very well. And it was taught from one generation to another generation. You come to the book of Jonah, an interesting book. But these are the very verses that Jonah cites as the reason he did not go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. He explains his disobedience to Yahweh. He says, he prays to Yahweh and he says, he prays to Yahweh and he says, please, Yahweh, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity, end of quote. Now, what, what's that concerning? Jonah did not want to go and preach against the Ninevites because he did not want to see them repent because he knew that God was going to be loving, kind, and merciful to them, and they were arch enemies of Israel. He didn't want that to happen. Jonah could not handle the fact that God was going to be merciful to Gentiles. Well, Ruth knew that experientially. She knew this experientially. The third thing is, she believed here the provision of a human kinsman redeemer. Because she trusted in the Mosaic law and Naomi made sure she understood and believed in that provision of the kinsman redeemer, we know that from chapter three of Ruth. In fact, we spoke about this in the last two messages we did from Ruth. In Ruth chapter three, verses one through 13, demonstrating how Naomi now is the mastermind. She helps Ruth to carefully follow the steps which are permitted in the law to request that Boaz become their kinsman redeemer. This is in perfect line with what Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 talks about. And so what Naomi does is lines Ruth up in order to obey Deuteronomy chapter 25. And Ruth is more than willing to follow everything that Naomi says at this particular point in order to be obedient to the Lord. I find it really fascinating that when the Sadducees confronted Jesus about whether or not there is the giving and receiving of marriage in heaven, they cite actually the kinsman redeemer passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there in Matthew 22, verses 24 through 28. And remember, in this, this is kind of the, um, the most unluckiest men in the world, seven brothers, each one of them die, all right? Every single one of them die, and it's now whose wife is she going to be in eternity? And why, why, they, why were the Sadducees saying that? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. It was a way for them to kind of prove that the resurrection didn't exist. Exist. Matthew 22, verse 24 through 28. But they're citing what? They're citing Deuteronomy 25, the kinsman redeemer. Well, Ruth believed in the provision of a human kinsman redeemer. Number four, the fourth thing is she followed the instructions of Naomi in the law by reaching out to Boaz as a kinsman redeemer. Now, after having been giving detailed instructions by Naomi and how to execute the law of the kinsman redeemer. Notice what chapter three and verse five says. It says there, she said to her, all that you say I will do. There's not a single reluctant molecule in Ruth's body to obey the Lord here. Everything you say I will do. And then look at verse six of chapter three. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. These weren't commands just from Naomi. They were commands that were made directly in implementing and executing the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 25. So you can see this happening 
Um, so she followed the instructions of Naomi in the law by reaching out then to the kinsman, uh, to Boaz as a kinsman redeemer. Ruth was convinced that this was the right thing to do and that the law of Moses provided the roadmap to accomplish her mission. She obeyed and trusted Yahweh for the outcome. Ruth had fully forsaken the gods of her youth. She had fully done that. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what Ruth was evidencing, the fact that she loved him and kept his commandments. Jesus says the same thing to us. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 15, the very next chapter, in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So Ruth learned, trusted, believed, and followed the requirements and provisions of the Mosaic law. There are many people who claim to be Christians today, but they are ignorant, mistrusting, unbelieving, flagrantly disobedient to the Word of God. Flagrantly disobedient. So the first layer of trust in Ruth's resilience is the Lord. The second layer is the law. But the third layer that really fuels Ruth's resilience is his loving kindness. The term loving kindness is actually the Hebrew word chesed. Sometimes it's translated grace in the New Testament. But it only occurs twice in this book, in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 20 and Ruth chapter 3 and verse 10. And even though the idea here in this loving kindness, um, sometimes it's translated by the simple word kindness, like in the English Standard Version or the New American Standard. Or sometimes it's translated by the words steadfast love. The actual Hebrew term means loyalty, faithfulness, goodness, graciousness. It's the same word that is used in the New Testament for grace, charis. It's the Greek term for grace, signaling unmerited favor. So the personal knowledge that Ruth had of Yahweh's loving kindness was this third layer of her own steadfast resilience and trust. Now, there are four insights into Ruth's trust in the loving kindness of Yahweh that will help you to do some very, helps her to do some very remarkable and courageous things. When God grants you grace, it is a promise of his special presence. When, when, When you are graced by God, it basically says, I am with you. So sometimes we have the English expression that says, um, that person graced me with their presence, all right? Well, the same thing. When God graces us, that means I am with you. So grace then means fearlessness, courage, boldness in the face of danger or difficulty. That's grace. I am with you, Yahweh says. Number one, she experientially understood the loving kindness of Yahweh through his mercy. Ruth was welcomed in a Jewish family of Elimelech and Naomi by marrying their son Malone. To do so, she had to renounce her allegiances to her childhood Moabite, Moabite gods, especially the chief god, Chemish, a god that required child sacrifice. And she had to surrender her life to Yahweh and vow to follow the Mosaic Covenant. She was not just openly received by Malone's family, but she became a member of the covenant community of Israel as a genuine believer in Yahweh. She would have understood the uniqueness of her situation since it was very rare for a Gentile to convert to Judaism. And this was especially true 
of being a Moabite, and even especially true of being a woman. She, now she was a part of the covenant promises given to Israel, along with all of the blessings that Yahweh promised to those who are faithful in keeping the covenant. So as a young woman, given the cruel background of her childhood under the harsh and wicked Moabite gods, this was really new, and it was incredibly liberating for her. This was her first experience with the loving kindness of Yahweh. The second thing here, she was taught the loving kindness of Yahweh by her mother-in-law. In fact, you can go back to chapter 2 and verse 20, where it talks about, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of Yahweh who has not forsaken his loving kindness. Now he's re she's referring to Yahweh, who has not forsaken his loving kindness to the living and to the dead. So, at this particular point, chapter 2 and verse 20 shows a notable change of attitude in Naomi's life from one of bitterness to now. She is incredibly devoted to following Yahweh and trusting him like Ruth has been. So when Naomi came to her senses and forsook her bitterness, she began to understand and share with Ruth how Yahweh had been gracious, showing them loving kindness. And then just a few verses later in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Naomi now is already implementing a plan based upon the Old Testament law of the kinsman redeemer in order to show kindness to Ruth to provide her a state of rest. Listen, there's a reality here that you've got to understand in the flow of the argument, and that is once Naomi dealt with her bitterness and she started to see Yahweh in a brand new light, as we said before, behind a frowning providence is often a smiling face. And she begins to see the smile of God uh, upon her life at that particular point. Then all of a sudden, now the word of God becomes very important to her. That's the reason why she now in chapter three, verses one through five, turns the Old Testament law and now begins to talk about how to implement it. She sees implications of what God has given in that Old Testament law as being helpful and even encouraging and possibly a refuge for them to run to. She sees that. So she was taught the loving kindness of Yahweh by her mother-in-law, Naomi. Thirdly, she practiced loving kindness with her mother-in-law. She practiced it. How do we know that? Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. We covered that in one of our last messages here in our series. It says, then he said, that is, Boaz is speaking to Ruth, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after younger men, whether poor or rich. He talks about two places where now, Naomi shows her loving kindness. One, the first one, or not Naomi, but Ruth. The first one is with Naomi, her loving kindness towards her. But the second one has to do with Boaz by not going after younger men. So Ruth is so kind to Naomi, and Naomi knows it. When you look at verse 2 of chapter 3, Naomi asks the question, Notice when she says in chapter two and verse or chapter three, verse two, and now is not Boaz our kinsman. Now notice the word our kinsman. That's a very telling statement. Technically, Boaz was Naomi's kinsman, not Ruth's. What is so remarkable about this chapter of Ruth is that Naomi herself should have been the recipient of the blessing of the kinsman redeemer but she was too old to bear children and raise another family. So she gives away her right to her Gentile, formerly pagan daughter-in-law. Why? I believe it was because of Yahweh's grace to her and to Ruth's previous loving care for her. Now, Naomi wants Ruth to enjoy rest, as she talks about in verse one, and the blessings of God, Ruth had been overwhelmingly generous and kind to Naomi, and now Naomi gives away her right to Ruth. 
It was Naomi's right to have that kinsman redeemer, not Ruth's. But she passes it down to Ruth, which she did not have to do. The fourth thing, she showed loving kindness in expressing her desire to be Boaz's wife. Boaz openly acknowledges this in chapter 3 and verse 10. He's much older than Ruth, implying that he was no longer a young, handsome guy. Ruth could have gone after younger men, forsaken her mother-in-law, denied executing the law of the kinsman redeemer, but she doesn't do it. In a breathtaking display of personal self-denial, she actively pursues the old man Boaz to be her husband and her redeemer. Boaz is very impressed with her virtue and character, recognizing that Ruth has shown this first to her mother-in-law and then to him and shown them both loving kindness. So there's the three layers. Now that brings us, that's just my introduction, but that brings us to (laughs) verse 14. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be not known that the woman came to the threshing floor. This brings us to Ruth's redeemer. Ruth's redeemer. This is Boaz. Now throughout the rest of the book of Ruth, the main focus begins to switch from Ruth to Boaz. Main focus. In verses 14 and 15, turns our attention to Boaz. And again, Ruth follows the instructions given to her from from Boaz in verse 13 for her to stay the night after coming to the threshing floor. But in a display of deep respect for Boaz, she arises while it's still dark so that people will not recognize her. Without her cautious behavior, this could have been scandalous. Rumors could have destroyed his reputation as a man of righteousness and only served to reinforce the negative caricature concerning a promiscuous Moabitess. But that's not what happened. First of all, you notice how Boaz protects her reputation. When you read in verse 14, you are immediately reminded of the virtuous nature of Boaz. The regenerated heart of Ruth is found in Boaz as well. You know this because of his concern about purity and upholding righteousness. An ungodly man is more concerned about taking advantage of a situation for his own self-fulfillment. But Boaz is not concerned about himself. He's concerned about Ruth, and he acts in a very protective way. Number one, earlier, Boaz protected her from physical attacks. Back in chapter 2 and verse 9, you can see this. He, he says to her, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the young men not to touch you. And if you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the young men draw. And then you skip down a little bit later in verse 10. He says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, though I am a foreigner? And then you skip down even a little bit further in verse 15, where it says, then she arose and Boaz commanded the young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not dishonor her. Don't touch her. Don't do anything to her. Let her do her work. So you can see, even though all of this was true and Ruth was incredibly vulnerable, Boaz takes steps to protect her by having her glean only in his fields, and he sternly warns his male workers not to touch her. This is what a redeemer does. Main duty of a redeemer is to save. Just as Jesus saves us from our most deadly enemy, that is sin, Boaz saves Ruth from her enemies among his fellow Jews. The second thing, now Boaz protects her from false accusations. Back in chapter 3 and verse 13, look at this. Boaz says to Ruth, stay this night. Literally, he is saying, lodge or pass the night here in this location. They're at the threshing floor. It's the same term that Ruth used, same Hebrew term back in chapter 1 and verse 16, 
when she says to Naomi, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Same Hebrew term. Now, that's significant since that Hebrew word is used in chapter 3, verse 13, as well as chapter 1 and verse 16. It's never used anywhere in any Hebrew discourse to refer to any kind of sexual overtones. Neither he nor she takes advantage of the situation, but it's especially Boaz's job to continue to ensure that Ruth is kept safe, both from evil and from the appearance of evil. This is all reinforced when Boaz says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. A righteous man is concerned with protecting a woman, not using a woman. And we need that among godly men today. A type of men that elevate goodness and righteousness above self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction. So he provides for her protection, but he also provides for her relief. You can see that in verse 15. Verse 15 says, And he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and placed it on her. Then she went into the city. Now Boaz provides Ruth with about 60 to 90 pounds of barley grain. That's a heavy load. All right. This was a valuable engagement gift in those days. After many years of famine in Israel, grain was precious commodity. It, it consisted of six measures, probably six sheaths, about seven quarts per sheath, which would be 42 quarts altogether, which would approximately somewhere between 60 and 90 pounds. Now, some translations of the Bible say six epas. Epas, um, if you calculated the weight of that, it would be well over 200 pounds, which is way more than Naomi or Ruth probably weighed. So Ruth may have been a fairly buff woman. (laughs) But 200 pounds traveling uphill into the city of Bethlehem was way too much. And remember when we studied this before, that the threshing floor was down in the valley below the hill where Bethlehem was located. So Ruth had to carry this load uphill into Bethlehem. So even taking 60 to 90 pounds uphill on a hot day would challenge anyone. Ruth was a fit lady. She would have given some of the aerobic workout gurus a run for their money today. (laughs) Boaz in verse 15 says to her, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. Now, if you remember from our previous study back in chapter 3, Ruth had already taken a bath, anointed herself with perfume, put on her best clothes for the marriage proposal. So we can assume that she's wearing her best cloak when Boaz asked her to take it off and hold it, and he proceeds to pour 60 to 90 pounds of barley grain into this best cloak. Now, most women today would not have been very happy. (laughs) That would have soiled that coat pretty bad, but Ruth follows his instruction. She trusted Boaz, and she sees this grain as a wonderful gift. It was clear evidence of more than just lavish generosity. It was a sign of his good faith. Ruth knew Boaz genuinely cared for her as well as Naomi. Now, the question remains at this particular point. If Boaz really cared for Ruth, why didn't he carry the load of barley grain home for her? Wouldn't that be a great question? And I think it's a very valid one. Well, the answer, there are two plausible reasons. One is first, their agreement to marry was not public knowledge yet. Going to her home would have been a huge scandal or a risk. Um, They could have been stoned for adultery. But the second thing is Boaz had a more pressing matter to attend to. He had to go to the city gate and see if the closer relative was willing to be the kinsman redeemer because he's not the closest relative. If not, then Boaz was going to act quickly to be the next in line. The marriage had to be solemnized by the elders of the city. There was no time to lose. Secondly, Boaz has her take the grain home for both herself and her mother-in-law. Ruth's loving kindness to her mother-in-law had already impressed Boaz back in chapter 2 and verse 11. So... His gift of barley grain was not just for Ruth, but it was for Naomi as well. 
This was a wonderful and very generous gift, gift given all so that these two ladies would have enough to sustain themselves. Ruth loved her mother-in-law so much that both if Boaz intended to marry Ruth, then he was indicating with this gift that should he marry her, he would continue to care for her as well as for Naomi. So his generosity spoke volumes to both Ruth and Naomi. Well, the third area that we want to talk about real quickly is Ruth's, or Ruth's report. In verses 16 through 18, now turns your attention to Naomi. Naomi has been anxiously waiting to hear how her plan has worked out. It was a plan intended to give Ruth some rest, a plan that she had given to Ruth back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 16 and 17, Ruth gives the report. And in verse 18, Naomi gives her a reply. So Ruth makes her way up that steep incline to Bethlehem, carrying over 60 pounds of grain, arrives where she's lodging with Naomi. And if Ruth and Boaz was deprived of sleep that night, the same was true of Naomi. She had concocted the entire scheme. So number one, Ruth knows that Naomi is very curious as to whether or not Boaz is willing to be their redeemer. After all, this was Naomi's plan to begin with. And you can see this in verse 16 when then she came to her mother-in-law and she said to her, how did it go, my daughter? And he told her, or she told her, all that the man had done for her. And then she said in verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Now, the interesting question is, when she asked that particular question, how did it go, my daughter? That's interesting in the Hebrew because um, it means um, literally, who are you, my daughter? But Naomi knows who Ruth is. The question illustrates the fluidity of Hebrew interrogative particles here. Uh, but what it really means is how are you or how did it go for you? So Naomi asks a question that is difficult to translate into common English. And it's a question that seeks to know just what happened. How are you uh, is the best way. How did it go for you? Naomi doesn't just want to know the events that occurred. She wants to know just how Ruth was handling the events that occurred. So it asks both, what happened and how are you doing? So this is exactly the way that Ruth understood her question. So number two, Ruth shares the whole story with Naomi along with the proof of Boaz's agreement confirmed by the large amount of barley. So this huge gift could possibly be what they called in the Old Testament a mohar. What that is, is, is that is, it's the bride's price paid at the time of betrothal. All right? It's the bride's price paid at the time of betrothal. The mohar was often given by a groom at the time of betrothal, not as a purchase price, because women were not commodities in the Old Testament to be bought and sold, but as a promise to prepare for the wedding in good faith and a pledge for good behavior of the groom towards the bride in the meantime. So one last observation in verse 16. Ruth now refers to Boaz as the man. Now, it seems strange and very impersonal, especially in reference to the fact that he's probably going to be her husband. However, in ancient Israelite culture, it was a common way to speak about a male who was socially their superior. Boaz was a wealthy and well-established man. And even in our culture, when a guy does something great, we have this expression, you are the man. <laughs> now, if you're a Christian, you should say, no, 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 but I know the man. <laughs> All right? I know the man. So what is Naomi's reply? You can see it. Naomi, first of all, wants Ruth to rest her body and her mind. Ruth has just climbed this steep hill. She's exhausted, but she's excited to report this to Naomi. Um, so she wants to rest. Secondly, Naomi reassures Ruth that she can be confident that Boaz 
will follow through on his promise. Naomi has expressed great confidence in Boaz. Ruth can sit back and relax because she knows that Boaz will not be sitting back and relaxing. Boaz is the type of man who will see this thing to the very end. Naomi knows that. He knows, she knows him to be a man of action who does not leave loose ends. And this particular point, this is where the story switches. And the main focus now becomes that of Boaz. So there's Ruth's resilience, there's Ruth's redeemer, Ruth's report. What can we say by way of conclusion? Ruth the Moabitess, her whole life rested in her trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. She followed the law and God blessed her life. Why do you and I tend to get so anxious and worried about what's going to happen in our lives? Ruth's God is our God. When John Patton was translating the Bible for a South Seas Island tribe, he discovered that they had no word for trust or faith. And one day, a native who had been running hard came into the missionary house, flopped himself in a large chair and said, it's so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. That's it, said Patton. I'll translate faith as resting one's whole weight on God. That's what we see Ruth doing, resting her whole weight on God. And that's what we need to emulate as well. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful story. It's a story that is timeless. It is a story that teaches us to trust you. And as a result of that, then you care for your people and you grace us with your presence, which means fearlessness and courage in facing whatever we need to face in this world. Help us as we seek to do this and honor you with our lives. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.